Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, John and Mary Lou Missel, authors of the new book, The Army is My Calling, The Life and Writings of Major John Rogers Vinton, 1801-1847. What made Vinton interesting to us as Seminole War historians is that he served in Florida for nearly the entire seven years of the Second Seminole War. We'll discuss the history of sugar cultivation in Florida. The first attempts, at least, at commercial cultivation of sugarcane began in Florida, and it was actually in the 1760s. We'll also talk about difficult lessons learned from space program disasters. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. The life of a soldier who fought in Florida during the Second Seminole War is chronicled in detail in the new book, The Army is My Calling, The Life and Writings of Major John Rogers Vinton, 1801-1847, by John and Mary Lou Missel. The married co-authors have written extensively about the Seminole Indian Wars. Well, I got interested in it when I was working on my master's degree through um, California State University, uh, but I did it through distance learning. And I wanted to do my master's thesis on some aspect of Florida history. And a very good friend of mine, Annette Snap, suggested that I look into the Seminole Wars because there wasn't that much known about it. And so I did. And then after the thesis was done, um, we realized we had a lot of information that we'd researched for the thesis, and but we had never been able to find a book that covered all three wars, everything in between, the politics and all that. So we decided to write one. <laughs> and uh, the University Press of Florida picked it up, and it's gone through two printings, now in paperback. In addition to writing the book The Seminole Wars, America's Longest Indian Conflict, the missiles have edited the books This Miserable Pride of a Soldier, The Letters and Journals of Colonel William S. Foster in the Second Seminole War, and This Torn Land, Poetry of the Second Seminole War. In addition to their nonfiction work, the missiles have used their expertise to write two works of fiction based on fact, Elizabeth's War, a novel of the First Seminole War, and Hollow Victory, a novel of the Second Seminole War. As part of doing research and reading up on all this stuff, the imagination gets working and you start putting yourself in these no-win situations that people got in where there was no good solution to their problems. And as the imagination gets going, 
characters start coming to mind and you write a story. <laughs> but it's also real important for us when we do write fiction that we uh, do our research on the historical facts. And especially with Elizabeth's War, that's what we wanted to put at the end of the book to show the readers how extensively we did our research into putting that story together. John Rogers Vinton entered West Point at the age of 12 and went on to serve in Florida during the long Second Seminole War. Vinton was a 30-year career Army officer who served from the War of 1812 up until his death in the Mexican War in 1847. You know, most 19th-century biographies focus on the big names, the presidents, generals, and other famous leaders, especially from the Civil War. Vinton was different. He was not super ambitious or a glory seeker and didn't rise above the rank of captain until a few weeks before his death. Yet he was there in the field, doing the important work, carrying out the orders of his superiors in often very trying circumstances. It was an aspect of 19th century military life we felt was worth examining. And what made Vinton an excellent subject for such a study, Ben, was that he left numerous journals and letters and came from a large family whose personal correspondence has been preserved. And through these documents, we've been able to follow his life from the day he graduated from West Point until the day he was killed in Mexico. What made Vinton interesting to us as Seminole War historians is that he served in Florida for nearly the entire seven years of the Second Seminole War. He was also an accomplished artist and left numerous paintings and drawings depicting people and places from the war. Although John Rogers Vinton had a 30-year career in the Army, almost half of the missile's book focuses on his time in Florida. And naturally, we were more interested in the Seminole War years as historians, but it was also the period when he kept the most detailed journals. And also, because he was down here in the wilderness, separated from his family, there were a lot of letters going back and forth between Florida and his home in Rhode Island. It's this personal correspondence that we found most interesting. Not only do we see the professional side of Vinton's life, we also get a good look at the everyday family life of a career Army officer of the period. Vinton was a devoted father and husband with a young wife and three small children when he was ordered to Florida in 1836. Because it could take weeks for a letter to go between the interior of Florida and New England, the writers put a lot of thought into what went into those letters. In one example that Mary would like to read, Vinton's wife Lucretia is trying to remind him of the simple pleasures of home, painting a verbal picture of an evening around the living room fire. John, would you like to take a look in upon us? Well, seat yourself in the parlor, not on the sofa, for the children are there, but in the corner there by the stove. Then you will be next to Mother, for there she sits with her spectacles on, hemming some towels like those you use. On the sofa are all three of our dear children. Helena and Lulu with their work boxes trying to sew, and little Frank Lawrence doing all he can to prevent them. Mother, says Lulu, Lawrence is stepping on my sewing box. Off goes Lawrence, and as he goes, he gives Lulu's box a knock and pushes down the cover. Lawrence, I say, if you do so again, you must come away. So then we have peace for a few minutes, 
but it is not long before there comes another complaint about the mischievous Lawrence. But then he comes to my side, rising up on his toes and down again, saying, Up, Mama! Up, Mama! And so I must take him up into my arms. And so there is an end to my letter writing for the present. Fenton saw a lot of Florida during his time here, traveling and working throughout the territory. John and Mary Lou Missile. During the seven years he was serving here, he covered much of the peninsula. His first duty station was on the St. John's River, where he fought in the Battle of Lake Monroe, one of the war's larger battles. Because he became friends with some of the Seminole when a truce was declared after the battle, he gives us some of the best accounts of the battle from both sides. It was also rather amusing to see him get miffed at his mother and his wife when instead of praising him for his gallantry under fire, they expressed their fears that he might actually have been killed. Besides duty along the St. John's and Oklawaha rivers, he also saw action around Miami and Fort Lauderdale and into the Everglades. This was difficult work. The soldiers might go out for a week or two on patrol, slogging through the swamp, often having to drag their heavy canoes when the water was low, and all without seeing the first Seminole. Then, a week later, while going up the Miami River for water, they might get ambushed. Added to that was the heat, the insects, and the threat of disease. It was not an easy life. He spent most of his time as commanding officer at the fort at New Smyrna, which he seemed to enjoy. Because it was removed from most of the action, he spent more time hunting and fishing than he did fighting Indians. For any present-day fisherman who spends a whole day on the water trying to catch one fish, it's amazing to hear him tell of going out into Mosquito Lagoon and coming back with over 100 fish in one day. He also spent a lot of time in St. Augustine, both on the occasional holiday and also as commanding officer in the months after the war concluded. His first impressions of the city, however, weren't exactly Chamber of Commerce comments. This is my first visit to St. Augustine. It is a place of considerable reputation, and I presume when I become acquainted with the society, I shall see something to fill out the idea I had formed of it but thus far I am disappointed. Although recently from the woods, and my mind favorably disposed for pleasant contrast, I cannot say that St. Augustine has justified the impressions I had entertained of it. There is no street in the place wider than the meanest lane in Boston, and the buildings have all the look of dilapidation and decay. Then again, for someone so long shut up in the pine woods and interior as I have been, the salt sea and the ocean breeze are luxuries and even greater interest than the romantic sentiments that hang about this ruined metropolis of Florida. In time, he did come to appreciate the city, telling his children, St. Augustine is healthy and delightful. Today, I am sitting with the windows open, enjoying the mild air, but at evening we keep fires. Our society here is not large, not so many families to visit as we should have at home, but still, there are some very agreeable ones among them. In addition to letters and other documents from John Rogers Vinton, John and Mary Lou Missile have included color plates of artwork in the book The Army is My Calling. While he was a career soldier, Vinton also exhibited skill as an artist. He took some lessons while stationed in Washington in the 1820s, and drawing was an important part of the curriculum at West Point. In the days before photography, 
Officers stationed on the frontier were expected to be able to faithfully record the new landscapes they encountered. Still, a lot of it was natural talent, and it was something he definitely enjoyed doing. And that's also one of the reasons we included so many pictures and a colored section in the book. As they became engrossed in the life of John Rogers Vinton through his letters and military records, John and Mary Lou Missile visited places he had lived. It was also gratifying to see how many places still exist that have some association with Vinton. There is, of course, St. Francis Barracks and the Castillo de St. Marcos and St. Augustine, but there is also the house he lived in when he was commanding officer at what used to be the federal arsenal in Augusta, Georgia, which is now the admissions office at Augusta State College. There's also Fort Macon in North Carolina, where he commanded in the 1840s. And in the little town of Pomfret, Connecticut, the small farm his mother owned still bears the same name it did when it was a family gathering place. And just down the road is a lovely little church designed by Vinton's grandson, a well-known architect of the time. And in that church, we discovered a set of Tiffany stained glass windows, one of them dedicated to Major John Rogers Vinton, killed in action in the Mexican War. John and Mary Lou Missile are authors of the new book, The Army Is My Calling, The Life and Writings of Major John Rogers Vinton, This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to listen to archived editions of this program and watch episodes of our public television series, Florida Frontiers. That's myfloridahistory.org. We have lots of content on Facebook as well at Florida Historical Society. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, the sugar industry has been a significant part of Florida's economy for hundreds of years. 
Yeah, that's right, Ben. Uh, going back to the late 18th century during the British period between 1763 and 1783, the first attempts, at least, at commercial cultivation of sugarcane began in Florida, and it was actually in the 1760s in present-day Volusia County near the New Smyrna uh, settlement, which was established by Andrew Turnbull in the 1760s. Uh, now, that sugarcane operation, although it did get off the ground, was ultimately unsuccessful. There were some worker riots, basically, that the uh, plantation failed. And it really wasn't until the 19th century that the industry began to uh, start again, and any commercial operation started after that time period, really during the territorial period. But it's probably important first to talk about what sugarcane is. Sugarcane is actually a grass. Some people have probably seen it. It looks very similar to bamboo, and it's a perennial grass species native to Asia, but was brought over to the New World by European countries, specifically the British. And sugar became a major component of the British colonial agricultural complex throughout the world, specifically in the Caribbean. And during the American Revolutionary period in the Caribbean, the British had enormous sugarcane production facilities, um, specifically on the island of Jamaica. And that production spilled over into the United States, and that's when it was brought into Florida. Uh, so after the Civil War, or at least leading up to the Civil War in the territorial period, a lot of the sugarcane production that was done in Florida occurred on small subsistence farms. So they were fairly uh, small-scale operations somewhere, maybe only a, a few acres. And the sugarcane was produced, it was uh, grown and then cut by hand, and it was actually ground down through these small sugarcane grinders, some of which you can still find today throughout Florida. Some are, are still in use, actually. And the syrup was then boiled down, the water was boiled off, and the syrup would be bottled and, and sold as a, as a sweetener. So it was kind of a cottage industry into uh, the latter half of the 19th century. But it wasn't until uh, a man named Hamilton Diston uh, bought up large tracts of South Florida that, again, kind of a rapid expansion of the commercial production of sugarcane began in earnest. Now, you have here a publication about the cultivation of sugar in Florida that's more than a century old. That's right. What we're looking at is a kind of an agricultural study written by a gentleman named William Carter Stubbs. And Stubbs was originally from Virginia. He uh, fought for the Confederacy during the American Civil War, uh, went to the College of William and Mary, received his PhD, and was fascinated with agricultural production and really honed in on sugarcane production. Uh, he moved to Louisiana and was named the director of the Sugar Experimental Station in Louisiana. But he traveled extensively throughout the Southeast. A lot of that time was actually spent in Florida exploring the viability viability of commercially producing sugarcane on a grand scale. And he notes in this treatise, now this was published in 1900. I had mentioned Hamilton Disson. Disson died in the 1890s. So a lot of his efforts in South Florida kind of died with him. So by 1900, there wasn't a lot of large-scale commercial sugarcane production going on. He writes here, based on his observations, that in Florida, now he's describing uh, one of these small kind of subsistence farmers. He says here, quote, in the process of skimming, a loss has occurred of fully 10 to 15% of the juice obtained, so that the final product in syrup does not really represent one half of that actually contained in the cane, unquote. So what he's saying here is, as I described earlier, that hand-pressing process was not efficient enough. Uh, and what Stubbs found out is that he could improve upon that process with more refined technology. And that's what he wanted to bring to Florida. So throughout this uh, 1900 publication, he outlines not only some of the processes that could be employed in Florida, but also some specific areas. Now, keep in mind that right around 1900, much of South Florida was still undeveloped. 
but the state was very determined to develop that that area, what we now refer to as the Everglades region, the Everglades watershed. Uh, there were massive efforts to drain the Everglades and to drain a lot of the marshland, essentially, to turn that property, the huge flat acreage, into commercially viable agricultural areas. And sugarcane production uh, really was best suited for the area around Lake Okeechobee. And that's what folks like Stubbs and other manufacturers in Florida were really fascinated with around the turn of the century. And the sugar industry is, of course, still very active in Florida today. It is. Now, in 1920, uh, the U.S. Department of Agriculture set up a sugarcane experimental station in Canal Point, which is in the western part of Palm Beach County. And today, Palm Beach County produces 75% of all the sugar that's produced by sugarcane in Florida. And nationwide, Florida produces about half of the cane sugar and about 25% of the total sugar production within the United States. Now, uh, they compete with the sugar beet, which is grown in more moderate climates in the north. Uh, Sugarcane is, like I said before, is kind of a tropical plant, so it really only grows in the southeast. So uh, they compete with the sugar beet production in other parts of the country. Um, But Florida still produces more sugarcane than any other state in the United States. And because of that, you know, especially in the 20th century, it's become a powerful force in uh, politics, especially in South Florida, and is uh, routinely kind of at the center of environmental uh, debates about Everglades restoration. So it certainly is a big part of Florida's history, but is, is a big part of Florida's future as well. Great. Well, thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. This is Florida Frontiers. America's space program has been very successful with every manned launch originating in Florida. There have been a few disasters along the way. Robert Casanello is a professor in the public history program at the University of Central Florida and reports that we can learn from those disasters. By 1986, shuttle launches were still being aired on television, but people had largely lost interest newscasters would cut in to regular programming 10 seconds before a launch, show it, get through the separation of the external tank, and that would be the end of the coverage. But since a teacher was on board, this was national news. Um, The day of the launch was actually the day that Ronald Reagan was going to be giving his State of the Union address. He had already written in his speech how wonderful this particular launch was going to be, and it ended up turning into a memorial speech. School kids around the country were watching it live. That was Dr. Amy Foster, author of Integrating Women into the Astronaut Corps. She spoke to me about the Challenger shuttle disaster of 1986. This wasn't the first disaster that resulted in the loss of life for NASA. Dr. Foster tells me about the previous accident when astronauts died in a capsule fire in 1967. 
this accident was a first and that it actually happened during a launch. The astronauts were not yet in space, but the previous astronaut loss of life was Apollo 1, and that was a ground test. The three astronauts were sitting in the Apollo 1 capsule, just simply conducting tests. And NASA was up against a, a timeline to get men on the moon by the end of the decade, and so they actually decided to combine some tests that day. They were going to pressurize the capsule. They were going to put all three astronauts in there. They were going to do some communication tests, and they were also going to do a plugs-out test, which means that the capsule was running on its own power, meaning plugs out. It's unplugged. And the combination of doing all of those things together, there was power running through the electrical lines. There was a frayed wire caused a spark. This was a pure oxygen environment. Nothing went up. Just It was a ball of fire in a matter of seconds. But that all happened on the ground. The fact that that happened on the ground probably made it possible for us to get to the moon by 1969 because we were able to, the engineers were able to deconstruct what happened and know how to fix it. Dr. Foster explains what caused the Challenger disaster. You know, people often talk about it as an explosion, and it really was, uh, we could say it was an extreme case of fuel leak, massive fuel leak. What happens in that event is... First, the temperature was very cold that day, the coldest launch that NASA has ever attempted, one of the shuttles. There had been evidence with some colder launches in the past that hot gases were leaking past the O-rings that sit between the segments that make up the solid rocket booster. Those O-rings are basically within the seal between those segments, and they're designed to keep those hot gases in. The problem is those O-rings are made of rubber. And as physicist Richard Feynman so eloquently pointed out, when he was on the Challenger Disaster Commission to explore what happened, he put a rubber gasket in a glass of ice water. It's hard. It doesn't work as a seal when it gets cold. So when the shuttle launched in very cold temperatures, it was below freezing that morning, those O-rings were rock hard and didn't work as a seal. So those hot gases leak out through the seal of one of the solid rocket boosters. And you can see that in the images. If you look at slow time lapse, there is a flame that actually shoots out from the left-hand side of one of the solid rocket boosters. Dr. Foster reflects on the legacy of the Challenger disaster. I think for NASA, that's where the lessons really are most strongly felt. Of course, they had another shuttle accident in 2003 with the loss of Columbia. There were, again, questions of whether the right decisions were made at the time about whether the engineers took all of the steps that they should have to protect that crew. There had been evidence that some foam off of the external tank had hit the leading edge of the left wing, and it may have caused enough damage to become a risk during landing. They evaluated the film and largely wrote it off as probably it's okay. And they they took a chance, and they took a chance with seven lives, and unfortunately those lives were lost. That's a very hard lesson for those engineers to learn. They took those losses very personally. And so I think as NASA moves forward, those reminders are constantly in their minds that they have a responsibility to the people they put on board to build the safest, best vehicle they can. That was Dr. Amy Foster, and I'm Robert Casanello with Florida Frontiers.
You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. And until then, you can visit us online at myfloridahistory.org to watch archived episodes of our television series, Florida Frontiers, and much more. You can also join the conversation on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Robert Casanello. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.